heavens. Lord, we, we thank you that we can look to you this morning. And we pray, Father, that you would have your way in our hearts today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Good morning. Start off the sermon with a cough. You're welcome. Um, go to Romans chapter 5. We will be in verses 1 through 4. Um, maybe 1 into 5 a little bit. I'm going to try to save most of 5 for next week. For those of you who don't know, this year in 2023, we're just kind of walking uh, verse by verse through the book of Romans. It'll take us most of this year to do that. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 5. Let me read it, and then we will get into it. Uh, just by way of something that I want to say now, um, just because uh, I'm afraid I'll forget to say it, say it later, we are going to be taking communion today uh, at the end of the service. Um, and... This sounds like a little technical thing, and you might not ever think about it unless this, this affects you, but just for those of you that have any sort of gluten allergy, we do have some bread this morning that's gluten-free that we'll be setting alongside the other bread up here in a, in a black bowl, and so just know that that is there uh, for you um, if you have any sort of gluten allergy or if that would be helpful for you. Uh, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Character produces hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray again that you'd help us see wonderful things from your word this morning. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Keep the enemy far from us, Lord, and let us leave here rejoicing, truly boasting in the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So uh, many of you guys know that... um, I don't know, 21-ish years ago. I'll sometimes tell these stories about how I used to travel with this little ministry team in an old 1980s Dodge Caravan with brown wood grain on the side of it. You guys remember the wood grain minivans? They were, they don't need to bring those back. They weren't very pretty. Um, But I used to travel with these guys, and I traveled for a couple months, and then I stopped traveling with them. But then another time, I went with them on a short-term little trip down to Florida. We went down there during spring break uh, to do evangelism on the beach. That was interesting. Um, but that's what we were doing. Anyway, we were cruising down to Florida, and at this time, these guys had gotten, they'd gotten like a mini, a mini bus, okay? It was like a little, I don't know, like a little tour bus kind of. Had perimeter seating in the inside of it, and uh, none of us were great mechanics, um, but on the way down, it, the thing kept dying, and it, was, it needed a new alternator, but none of us were really able to do that. So we would just like, we kept buying new batteries, and we'd just put a new battery in, and then we'd go until that would begin to die, and then we'd take it out and we'd put another battery in, and we were just like, we're going we're gonna to get there, you know? And so we're, we're doing this, we're having some issues, and I can't remember if we'd already taken a battery out and put it in or whatever, but the thing was dying again, and we were in Florida on, on our way down to Sarasota, and we, just as the thing begins to die, by the grace of God, there was an exit there along the highway, and we begin to coast off the exit, you know, and we're just kind of like, we're praying all along the way, just so we'll make it, and as we cr- are cruising off this exit, there's this big sign right beside this um, kind of mom's and dad's, uh, uh, um, like, rest stop, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like a pilot flying J? Truck stop, thank you, truck stop. Um, and there's this big sign by the side of the building that says, Sheffield, Florida, where Jesus is Lord. And we're like, yes, you know, the Lord's, the Lord's with us. And so we, we, cruise, we cruise in there, and uh, we actually go into the truck stop, and we're kind of asking around. And I, it was this, this guy, I'll never forget him, I don't know what his name was, but he, uh, I think he owned the truck stop, either there or he was just kind of like there. And they were Christian folks, and um, they had a little chapel in their, in their truck stop. And so we, he took us back into the chapel and, uh, uh, and he, you know, had us all stand in a circle and 
held our hands, and you know, I, I grew up, I grew up Baptist, like kind of conservative Baptist. So when you hold hands, it was just like you just go around in a circle and pray, and it's like if you don't want to pray, you just squeeze the hand of the person next to you, and then you know, you just pat. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Baptist life. Um, but uh, this 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 brother was charismatic, man, and so he's he's got our hands, and he just like takes me. He's like. Father, in the name of Jesus, and he was just—he's just going after it, and uh, he, you know, prayed for us, and it was good. And eventually, I forget what happened, but we got another battery and made it to Sarasota. Anyway, I say all that—kind um, of a weird introduction—but um, there's one commentary that I was reading this past week that talks about how, in the context of all of Romans, that chapter five is kind of like an exit that Paul takes along uh, the gospel superhighway that is, that is the book of Romans. And he gets off this exit, so to speak, in chapter 5 uh, to show us, just like the sign said in Sheffield, Florida, that Jesus is Lord. And he's not taking a different route. He's not going to change direction. But it really is a good analogy that he just gets off the gospel superhighway and he wants to stop and he wants to explain to us why all that he's just told us up to this point matters. Now, the real break, in the, he does that in different places in the book of Romans. Um, he does that especially in chapter 12, which many of you might be aware, where he really transitions to more of the practical implications of the entire gospel. But I do think that's a fitting word picture for what we're looking at here, especially in these first couple of verses of Romans, of Romans chapter 5 is that Paul wants us to understand the implications of justification by faith alone. And that's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. And over the last several weeks, the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, in regards to sola fide, or the doctrine of justification by faith alone, we've just been saying, what, what is it? What is it? But here in chapter 5, Paul begins to answer the question, why it matters. Before he was talking about what it is, now he's talking about what it does in our lives, and man, is it beautiful. And I'm glad that he pulls over along this exit to have us get this, because we need to get this. And folks, you hear me say this all the time, but like theology matters. It's not just life, and then, oh yeah, some people just hold different theological views over here in our little ivory towers that's somehow disconnected from everyday life. Your theology matters. And you might not think that you're a theologian, everybody is a theologian. Everybody has beliefs about who God is and what he's like and the way that we please him and the way that we gain acceptance with him. We all hold those things. Um, and your theology matters and it has great bearing on your life and that's what Paul is going to show us this morning. So a couple things here. We're just going to walk through it. Okay, starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore, so in light of sola fide, in light of what it is, in light of all that he's just been explaining, primarily about the life of Abraham, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and that's a summary of all that he's just said, since we have been justified by faith, he says, first of all, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Now, this is not, this is not the subjective, like, I feel I feel peace. Sometimes peace, the Bible talks about it as almost kind of like a feeling or, or, or a sense that we have where our heart is, is calm before him. But here he's not talking about the, the subjective feeling or sense of peace, but he's talking about an objective reality that the war is over. We have peace with God. If you remember the context of the entire book of Romans, what is the problem? The problem is that we are not righteous and God is righteous and we need a righteousness that is not ours and the wrath of God is against us. That's where Paul starts in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 and 18. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul has now laid out for us the answer to that, that it is by faith by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can have peace with God. And this peace, this objective reality that if we have simply trusted in Christ, that he is forced, guys, this makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. And I think that most of us in here this morning, although probably not all, but most of us might say that, yes, I've trusted in Christ. 
I've trusted in him. I've trusted in him for salvation. Do you understand then that the war is over? He loves you forever. What we're going to see in the first, really even just the first two verses of this passage this morning is that, guys, the security that we have in Christ is amazing. It is definitive. It is done. It has been established in Christ. We do not need to fear. If you guys remember the story in the Old Testament of the first kings of Israel, you had Saul, who was the first one, and then because of his disobedience, um, God takes away the kingdom from him and, and he raises up David, a man after his own heart, who kills Goliath. But you'll remember the story of how David is initially brought into Saul's courts to, um, to serve there because Saul has now, because he's, he's been walking in intentional disobedience, there's this evil spirit, it says, that has... Uh, come upon him and it, and it torments him. And David is really good at playing the harp. And so they find David and he comes in with, with music, with his harp, and he just plays the harp and it soothes Saul. And there, there's a passage um, in 1 Samuel 16 where Saul says this about David. He says, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. Then it comments and says, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand, so that Saul was refreshed and all was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. But then just two chapters later, in chapter 18, you have this, and Saul is now growing in his um, jealousy uh, of David because people were singing songs about him, and, and David has killed Goliath. And then, and so it says this, it says the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear at David, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Now I share that story because I'm convinced, although we probably wouldn't say it in this language, or maybe say it this extreme. But I'm convinced that many of us, when we come to God and we're told that we have peace with him, we kind of feel like we're David coming into the courts of Saul. That one day he's for us, one day he likes us, one day um, we have favor in his sight, so he says, but other days we're convinced that he's mad and he's going to take his spear and try to pin us up against the wall. Brothers and sisters, we have not come into the courts of Saul. We have come into the courts of a better king. A king that sent his son to pay the price for your sin so that you could know forever that you have peace with him. That it is established. And everything that Paul goes on to say here about this peace, follow this, it all flows out of our justification by faith alone. We have peace with him. Been, uh, we've been established in this objective peace. He says, and it's come through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. A couple words here. Because of this peace, and it's through Jesus, it's through him, we have this access where we can now come before him, and sometimes this word access, it could also be translated introduction, and both are kind of true, is that we now are in a place that we were not before. Once we were outside of Christ, once we were in the kingdom of darkness, but in Christ, if we have simply believed, justified by faith alone, we have been transferred into the kingdom of light. And we are now in Christ, and we now have access. But access into what? It says access by faith into this grace, this grace in which we stand. And the idea of, of, of standing here, it's the idea of, of being rooted, of being established. I don't have time to take you through all, you know, kind of the word study of this, but, but in the New Testament, it's not just the idea of like, I'm standing here, and then I'm standing here. It's the idea of being firmly established in a place. Um, the word is used in Acts chapter 22. Um, Paul is on trial, and he's going through a series of many different trials where he has to stand before different rulers and kings and authorities and, and such. 
And in Acts 22, verse 30, it says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and the council to meet. And he brought Paul down, and it says, and he set them before him. So his guards come, and he sets Paul before them. Paul is on trial. That's the same word here, is that we have been set. We've been established in this grace. And can I just tell you about this grace This grace is absolutely amazing. The grace of God, listen, over the next couple weeks, as we roll through chapter 5 here, and then eventually into verse 6, I almost guarantee you that each and every single one of us, we do not have any idea about the absolutely amazing grace of God. It is absolutely unbelievable. When we sing that song, amazing grace, amazing grace, doesn't even come close to describing what we have in Christ. Let me just give you a little taste, flip over. Later on in chapter 5, Paul's going to go on and he's going to describe this grace, but he's setting it up here. He says, we've been established, we've been set, we've been securely positioned in this grace. But if you'll just flip over to chapter 5, look at verse 15 and 16. Just very quickly, again, I will, we'll unpack this more in a couple weeks when we get to this section. But the, I'm reading from the ESV, but in chapter, or I'm sorry, in verse 15 of chapter 5, um, you, you'll see the little phrase, free gift, appears twice, and also the word grace. But it, it's the same word. The word free gift is charisma, and the word for grace is charis, charis, in the, uh, in, in the Greek. And so, but both of them, it's, it's, this, it's the same idea. It's, it's, it's this, this idea of a grace gift that he gives to us. And so he says in verse 15, but the free gift, this charisma, this grace gift, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more, and you'll see this little phrase, much more, throughout the rest of chapter 5, have the grace of God and the free gift, the charisma, by the grace, charis, of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. You'll see this word much more, and also this word abounded. But just jump down to verse 20 and 21, in speaking of this grace in which we have been established. And again, I promise you, you're probably going to want to fight this, but I'm going to fight back over the next couple weeks as we go through this, because you've got to get this. Verse 20 and 21. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What? Are you getting this? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know what else to say other than to just read it. I don't even have words to come. And you're like, that can't, Eric, I, okay, I see what he's saying, but that can't be what it means. It is what he means. That your sin, my sin, as wicked as it is and as bad as it is, if we trust in Christ, nothing we have ever done, nothing we will ever do will outdo what God has done for us through his son. It's absolutely amazing. And this grace that where sin increased, grace increased or abounded all the more, we have been set in it. We have been established in it. It is ours because we belong to Christ. Our life is hidden with him. I want us so badly to get this. One of the lies that we believe, and we especially believe it in this area, is that we think that when you get radical about the grace of God that is talked about in the Bible, and it is radical by nature, where, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. One of the lies that we believe is that if you preach this radical grace, that it is going to cause you to live a licentious, unholy life. That is not true. It is absolutely not true. We do not live holy lives by the power of the law. We live holy lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the revelation of Jesus Christ who has established us in his grace. 
And we're, again, I, don't, I'm, I can't just jump ahead and unpack chapters 6 and 7. This is what he's going to talk about. But if you'll notice there, again, in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that just as sin reigned in death. So the idea of reigning here, again, it's the idea of a, of a king. And, you know, what are the marks of that king's reign? Sin was king. It was reigning. What was the mark of that, king, of that evil king's kingdom? It was death. That was the mark of his reign. But he compares that then, he says, but now in Christ, that grace also might reign through what? Through righteousness. Is if you want to live a practically holy life, which is what Paul is going to transition to in the beginning of chapter 6, talking not just about where we're talking about now, our positional righteousness in Christ, but he's going to move to talking about practical righteousness in Christ. The way that that happens, if you want to live a practically holy life, is by understanding that you are established in grace. If you think that you can lose your salvation if you've been truly born again, then you will inevitably work to keep it. And as you inevitably work to keep it, if you believe you can actually lose it, you are not going to be living day by day with the joy that God wants for us. And that's what Paul goes on to say here in the next couple of verses in chapter 5. He, he says, through him we have obtained access into this grace in which we stand. And then he says this, and we rejoice in what? In hope of the glory of God. And this hope, again, we've talked, we talked about hope last week. I told you we we're going to talk about it this week. We're going to talk about it more next week. This hope is not like the world hopes. It's not like that we hope that our team wins the championship, or that we win the game, or we hope that you know, we get that new job. Our hope is certain. It is steadfast. It, it's just that we're waiting for it. That's it. And he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And again, roll it back. Don't forget where we just came from. Why is this? Because we've been justified by faith. We now have this objective, peace. The war is over. We are now standing because we have access and have been introduced into this grace in which we've been established. And so we rejoice. And the word here is strong. It, it's, it's literally, and it's, it, it's actually in these verses here, it, it's the only like outward, like strong imperative that there is. And the imperative hourly, it's we, we shout, we sing, we rejoice, we, we boast. It's early in chapter 3, where um, verse 27, where Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It's the same word. He says, What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. In other words, we, not, not boasting in our performance, not boasting in ourselves. What are we boasting in outwardly? We are boasting. In the hope of the glory of God that one day he is going to come back and when we see him, we will be like him. We're going to be made like him because we have been established in the court of the king. Now, as opposed to the imagery that I gave earlier of David living in Saul's court and unsure of the acceptance that he had, there's another beautiful story um, revolving around the life of David where after David has been firmly established on the, on the throne, Saul and his son Jonathan have both died. David, because he was friends with Jonathan, sought to show some sort of kindness to him. And so David goes on this search. He literally calls people together and he searches out someone from some descendant from the house of his enemy that he can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake. You guys might know this story, but he finds this one descendant, this son of Jonathan, a grandson of Saul, who was his enemy, and his name was Mephibosheth. Say that ten times fast. Mephibosheth. And it's just kind of a little cryptic story. It's not, there's not very much about it in 2 Samuel chapter 9. But David searches for him, and he brings in Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth, I can't even say it two times fast, um, or slow, but Mephibosheth was brought in and he was lame in both feet. He was a descendant of David's 
enemy. He's lame, completely helpless, and David brings him in. And again, I'm just kind of paraphrasing the story here, but then in 2 Samuel 9, verse 11, it says, And so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And then two verses later in verse 13 it says, And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And then it says this, Now he was lame in both feet. So the author wants us to get this picture of someone who was once an enemy and is lame, is crippled, has no right standing in and of himself. By grace, he is brought in and he is set at the king's table where it says he ate always. That is our position in Christ. Seated at the king's table. Though we were once enemies and though we are lame and can do nothing to gain favor. There's nothing that Mephibosheth can even bring to really serve David. Other than to just be thankful. So it is with us. That we have gained access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Um, <clears throat> I want to show those pictures quick. Josh, if you can throw those up there. This is from New York City. The next one. That is from Toronto, Canada. The next one. That is from London, England. On the day, they call it VE Day, the day that brought World War II uh, to an end, at least in the European theater, um, when Germany unconditionally surrendered. Uh, literally all over the world, people stopped what they were doing, and they ran out into the streets, and they began to dance. And they began to celebrate with people that they didn't even know. <laughs> Why? Because peace had finally been established. Do you understand? It was said of this day that um, many writers called it the celebration that was heard around the world. The celebration that was heard around the world. And brothers and sisters, while I'm not, I'm, <laughs> you tell me if I'm wrong or not, I'm not trying to just be overly dramatic. But should that phrase, the celebration that, would, that can be heard around the world, should that phrase not be used of Christ's church every time we gather? Every time we gather to worship and to sing that it would be the celebration that would be heard around the world. Why? Because peace has been established. Objective, real peace. The war is over. We've been set in this grace that all of our sins, past, present, and future, in a moment of faith, simply trusting Christ, looking away from self, looking towards him, the supernatural happens. And we who were once his enemies are made his friends. Um, and now we're just, we're waiting for this hope that one day uh, he is going to come back and on that day we will be changed. Now, these are all eternal gospel truths that are true of you, if you have trusted Christ, these things, all that I've just said, it is true of you right now this morning, right where you sit. Listen to me. Whether you feel it or not. Whether you feel it or not. If you have trusted Christ, we don't live by our feelings. We live by faith. Amen? If you have trusted Christ, this is true of you right now. But I also believe that even though the, these things are objectively true of you, eternal gospel truths that have been established, I bet there's something else that's true of each one of us this morning too in various shapes and forms and in different ways it might look different. And that is also though that we are facing 
suffering, difficulty, trials, and tribulations. And oh, how I love Paul, and I love the Bible, because not just Paul, but, and obviously the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but all the, all the writers, not just the New Testament, but all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. You understand that what we have in this book is not just, again, just abstract theology written in some ivory t- tower by people who were, who were detached from real life. Paul suffered greatly. Yeah, I mean, you can read about it in 2 Corinthians, like shipwrecked, whipped, beaten, slandered, falsely accused, wrongly imprisoned, over and over and over again. And, and when Paul writes about these, these grand gospel realities that I've just unpacked briefly about our peace, our access into grace, and how we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, when we see him, we're going to be changed. We're going to be like him. He's not willing to just talk about that and then, oh, just forget about the suffering. He brings the suffering right over to it. And he brings all the weight of our eternal security in Christ to bear upon our temporal suffering. And he goes on here in verse 3 and he says, not only that, so we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that's coming, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. What? What are you talking about, Paul? Why in the world would we rejoice in our sufferings? Well, let's let him explain. The short answer is this, is that the suffering is doing something. The suffering is not pointless The sovereign God who saved you by his grace is now working his grace into your life, but it comes through suffering. That's what he's going to say. Follow me here. He says, not only that, but we rejoice, we boast in, again, the same word, in our sufferings. Why? Because we like suffering? No. He says, why? Because sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And it's not just character, it's, it's more the idea of proven character. It's actually the idea of like, like a provenness, of like a metal that's gone through the fire. We'll talk more about that. Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, proven character, and proven character produces hope. Now follow me here, did Paul just draw a straight line or did he make a circle? On one level, when we start there with the sufferings, we're like, we've just drawn a line from, from suffering to hope. Yeah, but remember what came in verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And hope of the glory of God is something that we rejoice in, that we're excited about, because it's coming. And now when suffering comes, we can also rejoice in suffering. Why? Because suffering ultimately is going to produce more hope, which is going to produce more joy in our lives. You're like, I'm not sure I understand how that works. Let me try. Let me try to explain. Sufferings come at us, pain. And I, the word here um, that's used in the Greek is, it is definitely the idea of like tribulations and, and most likely what Paul has in mind here are probably the tribulations, the trials, the sufferings that um, especially are produced because of our commitment to Christ. However, I would argue from the Bible, not just here, but from many other places, that it doesn't even matter the, the why of the suffering. Like, like, this, like, why did this trial come into our life? Is it just because, is, is this, in other words, is this only when we're facing persecution for Christ that we can claim these promises that the sufferings will lead to hope, ultimately, and ultimately to joy? No, I don't think so at all. Any sort of difficulty, any trial that comes into our life, and I... I I won't, don't have time to totally go and try to, try to prove this to you, but I would argue even if you're in Christ, even the suffering that comes into your life because of your own foolishness, because of your own sin, if you lean into it and trust Christ, he will even use your sin to bring about good. There was a, I don't know if I shared this story with you before, but... Um, there was a YouTube video someone showed me a while back where this guy was YouTubing. And he was like filming, and he had like a, a gun with a holster on his side, and he was going to do a quick draw, and he was going to film it himself. Have I ever told you guys this story? Just say no so I don't feel bad. Anyway, 
But he's filming this thing, apparently, and he flashes down this holster, and then he goes to do this quick draw, and he, whoosh, and all of a sudden you're, oh, oh my. And as he went to get it out, he shot his toe off. I, yeah, I know. Can I be honest with you? Even as a Christian, I felt like that a lot of times. The pain that's been in my life sometimes is because of my own ridiculousness, my own sin. Can I tell you that even still, God has been faithful? Because I, like you, if you've trusted Christ, I've been established in his grace. Now, I'm not making light of it. I'm not saying, let's go shoot our toes off. No, that's not, that's not it at all. I don't want to do that again. But, folks, no matter what the suffering is that comes to us, it's doing something. It's doing something in your life. Whether it's somebody slandering you, gossiping about you, whether it's the result of your own sin that now there's tension in your relationships, whether it's because of sickness or cancer or disease or the loss of a loved one, and I know that's a sliding scale of severity there. I understand that. But my point is, all of it is doing something. Nothing is by mistake for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is working all things together for good for those who love him. And he says here that our suffering produces endurance. In other words, when suffering comes, we're going to have to endure. I don't think that one's hard to explain. we got to lean into it. And then as we lean into it, though, it's going to produce this character. And after that, it's this proven character that's going to come about. We're going to have hope. Why? Because on the back side of it, we're going to be able to say, wow, I made it. <laughs> I got through that. Again, I, I feel, I don't know, it, it is what it is. And uh, we preachers have to repeat ourselves a lot of times. But, I, you know, I, I try not to tell the story too much. But, like, you guys know the story about when I fell off the roof and broke my neck. <laughs> and, you know, had a pile of medical bills and had, um, <coughs> and had uh, uh, you know, could no longer do what I was doing for my livelihood to support my family. Can I be honest with you? I hated that season. <laughs> I hated it. It was not fun. I don't ever want to have to go back. But can I tell you something else? Through that whole process, I have a renewed sense of hope like I've never had before. Why? Because it is the grace of God that got me through. And his grace alone. And that's the idea here. Let me, have you guys ever watched Forged in Fire? Anybody? It's this show, reality show slash uh, competition show, I guess, where they make knives. And the, the idea is to make the best type of knife and there's usually some different parameters for how big the knife needs to be and what type of you know blade it kind of what it needs to look like and different things anyway here's what they do they're ba they basically start off with a chunk of steel and the competitors they each have this little mini forge or sometimes they they, they use they use a torch and they take the steel and they put it into the forge and they heat it up and I mean, it's not just getting warm, it's getting hot, and it's beginning to glow, and it's beginning to swell a little bit, and it's also beginning to get soft. But here's the deal, is they don't just stick it in the forge really hot, you know, if you're the, if you're the piece of steel, be really uncomfortable. They don't just put it in the fire, and then pull it out and go, ta-da, got a sword. Oh, I've got a knife. No, no, no. There's another part to the process, and hang with me, because I think this is the part that we miss a lot of times is that God's going to put us in the fire. Things are going to get hot. But what happens is, just like the metal, we begin to soften. We begin to break down. Literally, for that steel, at like a molecular level, it begins to break down so that now it can be molded to the master's hand. But you know how they do it. They get it out, and while it's still hot, it's still uncomfortable, the pain is not gone, now they take the hammer and they lay it on the anvil, and they begin to swing, and they're swinging, and they're swinging, and sparks are flying. And what are they doing in the midst of the heat 
of that trial, now they're beginning to mold them and shape them into what they want it to be. It's in the midst of the suffering that's like heat. We gotta endure, we can't pull out, we gotta stay in, but that alone isn't just enough. Because what he wants to work on us in, that, in those moments when we're pliable and when we're soft and when we're willing to listen. And many times the only ways we're willing to listen is in the midst of pain. It's when things are really hot is then he begins to hammer us and to produce this proven character. Brothers and sisters, who is he trying to form us into? Who? Who? Who is God trying to form us into? Jesus. Jesus would have been an acceptable answer. Christ would have been an acceptable answer. Jesus Christ would have been an acceptable answer. Whenever I ask a question, just say Jesus, and you'll usually be, you'll usually be safe. He's forming us into the image of Christ. Do we forget that we follow a man who was crucified? And yes, things get hot. But because of the hope, because of the peace, because of the joy, because of the grace in which we stand, we take those eternal gospel realities and we lean into the fire. And we seek to obey. Let, let, let me, let, listen to how Peter puts this. Peter has a very similar thought in 1 Peter chapter 1, but he, he expands upon it and puts a little bit more flesh on it in terms of this idea of not only being in the fire, the fire is definitely part of it, and it's not fun, but then he brings in and puts a little bit more flesh on what I believe to be the hammer blows upon the anvil that mold us and shape us. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why have these come? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not see him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So we have this hope, we're rejoicing in it. But then just a few verses later, after Peter is acknowledging the trial, he's acknowledging the fire that they're in, here's what he does not say. What he does not say in the midst of this fiery trial through which they are going, he doesn't say, hey guys, it's tough, so just take a break. Hey guys, it's tough, so just claim your victimhood and just sit back and relax and put it on cruise control in your Christian life for a little bit. He doesn't say that. Even though they're going through a fiery trial where in this context they are literally giving their lives having to give their lives for Jesus Christ. He acknowledges it, but here's what he goes on, and here's the imperative that he brings to bear upon the heat of their situation. He says this in verse 13. He says, therefore. So in other words, I, I know that you're suffering. Fiery trial. What should you do? Here's what you should do. Therefore, prepare your mind for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you understand that in the midst of the fire, Peter said, oh yeah, that's hot. Just, oh, come out and just, and just chill. no. All you'll still be is just a hunk of steel. If that's what we do. But in the midst of the fire, the commands still come. He says, be holy as I am holy. It's one thing to follow Jesus. It's one thing to say, yes, I want to live a holy life when things are easy. But it's another thing when it's hard. But what I'm saying is from you, to you back in the text in Romans chapter 3 is that this is where the provenness, the proven character begins to be shaped. That even when you're in the midst of the fire and things are, things are hot and the sparks are flying and you don't like it, that you're going to try, imperfectly granted, but you're going to try, you're going to obey anyway. You're going to serve anyway. You're going to worship anyway. I remember, like, and if I can just say this, I... I you, you guys do this, and you guys have encouraged me. I remember one week, um, I remember one week sitting up here and worshiping. For whatever reason, I was like, and I was worshiping, but for whatever reason, I was just, I turned around and I was just looking. 
in the congregation. Uh, and again, just in the Lord's timing, it's something I'll never forget. Is I remember, I remember seeing a couple who just that week had found out that they'd had a miscarriage. And it sounds so simple, but this is what I'm talking about. That in the midst of that disappointment and that trial, there they stood with their hands raised anyway. Christ, proven character of Christ, being formed in them. And I'll never forget that. It spoke to me. But that's what I'm talking about. And hear me. I, listen, if you, <laughs> I could give you a list, an endless list, of all the times where things have been hot in my own life, and I haven't worshipped anyway. And I haven't served anyway. And I haven't obeyed anyway. And I haven't, and I haven't, um, Pursued holiness anyway. And again, I, we've been established in God's grace. It's not, it's not going anywhere. But what I'm saying is, Christian, is that let's take these truths of this eternal security that we have in Christ and let's take them and let's apply them in real life to the heat and to the fire that we go through, that by his grace and to him be all the glory, that Christ might be formed in us. The last two weeks, and I've gotten more than one question on this, just not many, actually two, to be clear, two different situations. Well, the last couple of weeks, as we were looking at the life of Abraham, <coughs> I... Um, I mentioned just that the thing that had been in my heart as we've been studying it is that, is that um, we would go, that we would send people, and I used this little phrase, I believe both weeks. I said, you know, we're not, I don't just want to play church. I don't just want to play games. Part of that, the reason I said that is, I think that if we say that we belong to Christ, but every one of us does not completely offer him our life, and let him do with us whatever he sees fit, then I'd say we're just playing church. Because the grace of God is such that it, it, it just, it gets everything. <laughs> it gets everything. That's one way. But the other way we're just playing church is that, is that when, when things get difficult and things get hard and we're in the fire, we don't allow ourselves to be brought out and to be hammered. With his word and that, and understand that while we're soft in the midst of the difficulty, that it's not just the difficulty for difficulty's sake, but he's trying to mold us and shape us into something that we are not. And if we're not willing to hang in in that process, then we're just playing church. Amen? This is not just for missionaries. In closed countries. Suffering is, is, is not just for people in full-time ministry or, or people who, who really want to serve the Lord. That's not a thing. If anyone wants to come after Christ, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Imperfectly? Absolutely. But are we going to do it? Yeah. We need to. And we do it in the strength of that these gospel truths provide. And by his grace and in his goodness, where it ends is that we're going to have a hope. A hope that the world needs, a hope that, as we talked about last week, as Scott mentioned in the opening today, that we would be a city on a hill that would not be hidden. What is the light that people are going to see? It's our hope. That God has never failed us. And he never will. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. 
At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and he does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Isn't that the truth? What is God doing in the midst of your suffering? He's making you beautiful because he himself lives inside of us. Worship team, you can come up. We'll close. I really just have one point of application here today as, as we close. is If you're here this morning and I'm sure all of us have areas of our life that we would categorize as difficult on some level or where we're suffering or it's a trial in this season. But if you're here this morning and you've been in the fire, you feel the heat, but you've been resisting the hammer blow to have it mold you and shape you, here's what I want to ask you to do. Very simple. I want to ask that in just a second as we stand and as we take communion and as we sing, I want to ask that you stand and as much as you know how the grace that he gives, that you just stand and that you worship anyway. Whether you feel like it or not, as you would throw up your hands and surrender and say, okay, it hurts, but I want to be shaped into the image of Christ. Acknowledge, and I acknowledge with you, it's difficult. It's painful. But Lord, I want to be shaped into the image of Christ. And allow him to do, to do his work in you. Um, stand with me. I want to, before you guys jump in here, this, this song just came to mind as we were closing in prayer this morning. It's a song by Keith and Kristen Getty called He Will Hold Me Fast. Okay, And the chorus goes like this. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. You guys know that song? If you don't, now you do. Um, here's what I want to do. I just wanna, I'm just going to read the lines to the verses, and then I want you to jump in with me and sing that chorus with me, okay? It says this. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, he must hold me fast. He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight.